Section ten of Three Soldiers. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by M. B. Three Soldiers by John Dos Passos. Section ten. Two. The snow beat against the windows and pattered on the tin roof of the lean-to, built against the side of the hospital, that went by the name of Sun Parlor. It was a dingy place decorated by strings of dusty little paper flags that one of the Y-men had festooned about the slanting beams of the ceiling to celebrate Christmas. There were tables with torn magazines piled on them, and a counter where cracked white cups were ranged waiting for one of the rare occasions when cocoa could be bought. In the middle of the room, against the wall of the main building, a stove was burning, about which sat several men in hospital denims talking in drowsy voices. Andrews watched them from his seat by the window, looking at their broad backs bent over towards the stove, and at the hands that hung over their knees, limp from boredom. The air was heavy with the smell of coal gas mixed with carbolic from men's clothes, and stale cigarette smoke. Behind the cups at the counter, a Y-man, a short, red-haired man with freckles, read the Paris edition of the New York Herald. Andrews, in his seat by the window, felt permeated by the stagnation about him. He had a sheaf of penciled music papers on his knees, that he rolled and unrolled nervously, staring at the stove and the motionless backs of the men about it. The stove roared a little, the Y-man's paper rustled, Men's voices came now and then in a drowsy whisper, and outside the snow beat evenly and monotonously against the window-panes. Andrews pictured himself vaguely walking fast through the streets, with the snow stinging his face and the life of a city swirling about him, faces flushed by the cold, bright eyes under hat-brims, looking for a second into his and passing on. Slim forms of women bundled in shawls that showed vaguely the outline of their breasts and hips. He wondered if he would ever be free again to walk at random through city streets. He stretched his legs out across the floor in front of him. Strange, stiff, tremulous legs they were, but it was not the wounds that gave them their leaden weight. It was the stagnation of the life about him that he felt sinking into every crevice of his spirit, so that he could never shake it off, the stagnation of dusty, ruined automatons that had lost all life of their own, whose limbs had practiced the drill manual so long that they had no movements of their own left, who sat limply, sunk in boredom, waiting for orders. Andrews was roused suddenly from his thoughts. He had been watching the snowflakes in their glittering dance just outside the window-pane, when the sound of someone rubbing his hands very close to him made him look up. A little man with chubby cheeks and steel-gray hair very neatly flattened against his skull stood at the window rubbing his fat little white hands together and making a faint unctuous puffing with each breath. Andrews noticed that a white clerical collar enclosed the little man's pink neck, that starched cuffs peeped from under the well-tailored sleeves of his officer's uniform. Sam Brown belt and puttees, too, were highly polished. On his shoulder was a demure little silver cross. Andrews's glance had reached the pink cheeks again, 
when he suddenly found a pair of steely eyes looking sharply into his. "'You look quite restored, my friend,' said a chanting clerical voice. "'I suppose I am.' "'Splendid, splendid! But do you mind moving into the end of the room? That's it.' He followed Andrews, saying in a deprecatory tone, "'We're going to have just a little bit of prayer, and then I have some interesting things to tell you boys.' The red-headed Y-man had left his seat and stood in the center of the room, his paper still dangling from his hand, saying in a bored voice, "'Please, fellows, move down to the end. Quiet, please. Quiet, please.' The soldiers shambled meekly to the folding chairs at the end of the room, and after some chattering were quiet. A couple of men left, and several tiptoed in and sat in the front row. Andrews sank into a chair with a despairing sort of resignation, and, burying his face in his hands, stared at the floor between his feet. "'Fellas,' went on the bored voice of the Y-man, "'let me introduce the Reverend Dr. Skinner, who—' The Y-man's voice suddenly took on deep patriotic emotion. "'Who has just come back from the Army of Occupation in Germany.' At the words— army of occupation as if a spring had been touched everybody clapped and cheered the reverend dr skinner looked about his audience with smiling confidence and raised his hands for silence so that the men could see the chubby pink palms first boys my dear friends let us indulge in a few moments of silent prayer to our great creator his voice rose and fell in the suave chant of one accustomed to going through the Episcopal liturgy for the edification of well-dressed and well-fed congregations. Inasmuch as he has vouchsafed us safety and a mitigation of our afflictions, and let us pray that in his good name he may see fit to return us whole in limb and pure in heart to our families, to the wives, mothers, and to those whom we will some day honor with the name of wife, who eagerly await our return, and that we may spend the remainder of our lives in useful service to the great country for whose safety and glory we have offered up our youth a willing sacrifice. Let us pray. Silence fell dully on the room. Andrews could hear the self-conscious breathing of the men about him and the rustling of the snow against the tin roof. A few feet scraped. The voice began again after a long pause, chanting, Our Father, which art in heaven. At the Amen, everyone lifted his head cheerfully. Throats were cleared, chairs scraped. Men settled themselves to listen. Now, my friends, I'm going to give you in a few brief words a little glimpse into Germany, so that you may be able to picture to yourselves the way your comrades of the Army of Occupation managed to make themselves comfortable among the Huns. I ate my Christmas dinner in Koblenz. What do you think of that? Never had I thought that a Christmas would find me away from my home and loved ones. But what unexpected things happen to us in this world. Christmas in Koblenz under the American flag. He paused a moment to allow a little scattered clapping to subside. The turkey was fine, too, I can tell you. Yes, our boys in Germany are very, very comfortable and just waiting for the word, if necessary, to continue their glorious advance to Berlin. For I am sorry to say, boys, that the Germans have not undergone the change of heart for which we had hoped. They have indeed changed the name of their institutions, but their spirit they have not changed. 
how grave a disappointment it must be to our great president who has exerted himself so long to bring the german people to reason to make them understand the horror that they alone have brought deliberately upon the world alas far from it indeed they have attempted with insidious propaganda to undermine the morale of our troops a little storm of muttered epithets went through the room the reverend dr skinner elevated his chubby pink palms and smiled benignantly to undermine the morale of our troops so that the most stringent regulations have had to be made by the commanding general to prevent it indeed my friends i very much fear that we stopped too soon in our victorious advance that germany should have been utterly crushed but all we can do is watch and wait and abide by the decision of those great men who in a short time will be gathered together at the conference at paris let me boys my dear friends express the hope that you may speedily be cured of your wounds ready again to do willing service in the ranks of the glorious army that must be vigilant for some time yet i fear to defend as americans and christians the civilization you have so nobly saved from a ruthless foe let us all join together in singing the hymn stand up stand up for jesus which i am sure you all know the men got to their feet except for a few who had lost their legs and sang the first verse of the hymn unsteadily the second verse petered out altogether leaving only the y man and the reverend dr skinner singing away at the top of their lungs the reverend dr skinner pulled out his gold watch and looked at it frowning oh my i shall miss the train he muttered the y man helped him into his voluminous trench coat and they both hurried out of the door those are some puttees he had on i'll tell you said the legless man who was propped in a chair near the stove andrews sat down beside him laughing he was a man with high cheekbones and powerful jaws to whose face the pale brown eyes and delicately penciled lips gave a look of great gentleness andrews did not look at his body somebody said he was a red cross man giving out cigarettes fooled us that time said andrews have a butt i've got one said the legless man with a large shrunken hand that was the transparent color of alabaster he held out a box of cigarettes thanks when andrews struck a match he had to lean over the legless man to light his cigarette for him he could not help glancing down the man's tunic at the drab trousers that hung limply from the chair a cold shudder went through him he was thinking of the zigzag scars on his own thighs did you get it in the legs too buddy asked the legless man quietly yes but i had luck how long have you been here since christ was a corporal oh i don't know i've been here since two weeks after my outfit first went into the lines that was on november sixteenth nineteen seventeen didn't see much of the war did i still i guess i didn't miss much no but you've seen enough of the army uh, that's true i guess i wouldn't mind the war if it wasn't for the army they'll be sending you home soon won't they guess so where are you from new york said andrews i'm from cranston wisconsin do you know that country it's a great country for lakes 
You can canoe for days and without a portage. We have a camp on Big Loon Lake. We used to have some wonderful times there. Lived like wild men. I went for a trip for three weeks once without seeing a house. Ever done much canoeing? Not as much as I'd like to. That's the thing to make you feel fit. First thing you do when you shake out of your blankets is jump in and have a swim. Gee, it's great to swim when the morning mist is still on the water and the sun just strikes the tops of the birch branches. Ever smell bacon cooking? I mean, out in the woods in a frying pan over some sticks of pine and beech wood. Some great old smell, isn't it? And after you've paddled all day and feel tired and sunburned right to the palms of your feet, to sit around the fire with some trout roasting in the ashes and hear the sizzling the bacon makes in the pan. Oh, boy! He stretched his arms wide. God, I'd like to have wrung that damn little parson's neck, said Andrews suddenly. Would you? The legless man turned brown eyes on Andrews with a smile. I guess he's about as much to blame as anybody is, guys like him. I guess they have that kind in Germany, too. You don't think we've made the world quite safe for democracy as it might be? said Andrews in a low voice. Hell, how should I know? I bet you never drove an ice wagon. I did, all one summer down home. It was some life. Got up at three o'clock in the morning and carry a hundred or two hundred pounds of ice into everybody's ice box. That was the life to make a fellow feel fit. I was going around with a big Norwegian named Olaf, who's the strongest man I ever knew, and drink! He was the boy who could drink. I once saw him put away twenty-five dry martini cocktails and swim across the lake on top of it. I used to weigh a hundred and eighty pounds, and he could pick me up with one hand and put me across his shoulder. That was the life to make a fella feel fit. Why, after being out late the night before, we'd jump out of bed at three o'clock feeling springy as a cat. What's he doing now? asked Andrews. He died on the transport coming across here. Died of the flu. I met a fellow came over in his regiment. They dropped him overboard when they were in sight of the Azores. Well, I didn't die of the flu. Have another butt? No, thanks, said Andrews. They were silent. The fire roared in the stove. No one was talking. The men lolled in chairs somnolently. Now and then someone spat. Outside of the window, Andrews could see the soft, white dancing of the snowflakes. His limbs felt very heavy. His mind was permeated with dusty stagnation, like the stagnation of old garrets and lumber rooms, where, among superannuated bits of machinery and cracked, grimy crockery, lie heaps of broken toys. John Andrews sat on a bench in a square full of linden trees, with the pale winter sunshine full on his face and hands. He had been looking up through his eyelashes at the sun that was the color of honey, and he let his dazzled glance sink slowly through the black lacework of twigs, down the green trunks of the trees to the bench opposite, where sat two nursemaids, and, between them, a tiny girl with a face daintily colored and lifeless like a doll's face, and a frilled dress under which showed small ivory knees and legs encased in white socks and yellow sandals. Above the halo of her hair floated, with the sun shining through it as through a glass of claret, 
a bright carmine balloon which the child held by a string. Andrews looked at her for a long time, enraptured by the absurd daintiness of the figure between the big bundles of flesh of the nursemaids. The thought came to him suddenly that months had gone by. Was it only months? Since his hands had touched anything soft, since he had seen any flowers. The last was a flower an old woman had given him in a village in the Argonne, an orange marigold, and he remembered how soft the old woman's withered lips had been against his cheek when she had leaned over and kissed him. His mind suddenly lit up as with a strain of music, with the sense of sweetness of quiet lives worn away monotonously in the fields, in the grey little provincial towns, in old kitchens full of fragrance of herbs and tang of smoke from the hearth, where there are pots on the window-sill full of basil and flour. Something made him go up to the little girl and take her hand. The child, looking up suddenly and seeing a lanky soldier with pale, lean face and light, straw-colored hair escaping from a cap too small for him, shrieked and let go the string of the balloon, which soared slowly into the air, trembling a little in the faint, cool wind that blew. The child wailed dismally, and Andrews, quailing under the furious glances of the nursemaids, stood before her, flushed crimson, stammering apologies, not knowing what to do. The white caps of the nursemaids bent over, and ribbons fluttered about the child's head as they tried to console her. Andrews walked away dejectedly, now and then looking up at the balloon which soared, a black speck against the grey and topaz-coloured clouds. Salamarquin! he heard one nursemaid exclaim to the other. But this was the first hour in months he had had free, the first moment of solitude. He must live. Soon he would be sent back to his division. A wave of desire for furious fleshly enjoyments went through him, making him want steaming dishes of food drenched in rich, spice-flavored sauces, making him want to get drunk on strong wine, to roll on thick carpets in the arms of naked libidinous women. He was walking down the quiet gray street of the provincial town with its low houses with red chimney-pots and blue slate roofs and its irregular yellowish cobbles. A clock somewhere was striking four with deep, booming strokes. Andrews laughed. He had to be in hospital at six. Already he was tired. His legs ached. The window of a pastry shop appeared invitingly before him denuded as it was by wartime. A sign in English said, Tea. Walking in, he sat down in a fussy little parlour where the tables had red cloths, and a print, in pinkish and greenish colours, hung in the middle of the imitation brocade paper of each wall. Under a print of a poster-bed with curtains in front of which eighteen to twenty people bowed, with the title of Secret d'Amour, sat three young officers who cast cold, irritated glances at this private with a hospital badge on who invaded their tea-shop. Andrews stared back at them, flaming with dull anger. Sipping the hot, fragrant tea, he sat with a blank sheet of music paper before him, listening in spite of himself to what the officers were saying. They were talking about Ronsard. It was with irritated surprise that Andrews heard the name, 
What right had they to be talking about Ronsard? He knew more about Ronsard than they did. Furious, conceited phrases kept surging up in his mind. He was as sensitive, as humane, as intelligent, as well-read as they were. What right had they to the cold, suspicious glance with which they had put him in his place when he had come into the room? Yet that had probably been as unconscious, as unavoidable, as was his own biting envy. The thought that if one of those men should come over to him he would have to stand up and salute and answer humbly, not from civility, but from the fear of being punished, was bitter as wormwood, filled him with a childish desire to prove his worth to them as when older boys had ill-treated him at school and he had prayed to have the house burned down so that he might heroically save them all. There was a piano in an inner room where in the dark the chairs upside down perched dismally on the table-tops. He almost obeyed an impulse to go in there and start playing, by the brilliance of his playing to force these men who thought of him as a coarse automaton, something between a man and a dog, to recognize him as an equal, a superior. But the war's over, I want to start living. Red wine, streets of the nightingale, cries to the rose, said one of the officers. What do you say we go AWOL to Paris? Dangerous. Well, what can they do? We are not enlisted men. They can only send us home. That's just what I want. I'll tell you what. We'll go to the Cochon Bleu and have a cocktail and think about it. The lion and the lizard keep their courts there. What the devil was his name? Anyway, we'll glory and drink deep while Major Peabody keeps his court in Dijon to his heart's content. Spurs jingled as the three officers went out. A fierce disgust took possession of John Andrews. He was ashamed of his spiteful irritation. If, when he had been playing the piano to a roomful of friends in New York, a man dressed as a laborer had shambled in, wouldn't he have felt a moment of involuntary scorn? It was inevitable that the fortunate should hate the unfortunate because they feared them. But he was so tired of all those thoughts. Drinking down the last of his tea at a gulp, he went into the shop to ask the old woman, with little black whiskers over her bloodless lips who sat behind the white desk at the end of the counter, if she minded his playing the piano. In the deserted tea-room, among the dismal upturned chairs, his crassened fingers moved stiffly over the keys. He forgot everything else. Locked doors in his mind were swinging wide, revealing forgotten sumptuous halls of his imagination. The Queen of Sheba, grotesque as a satyr, white and flaming with worlds of desire, as the great implacable Aphrodite, stood with her hand on his shoulder sending shivers of warm sweetness rippling through his body, while her voice intoned in his ears all the inexhaustible voluptuousness of life. An asthmatic clock struck somewhere in the obscurity of the room. Seven. John Andrews paid, said good-bye to the old woman with the moustache, and hurried out into the street. Like Cinderella at the ball, he thought. As he went towards the hospital, down faintly lighted streets, his steps got slower and slower. Why go back, a voice kept saying inside him. Anything is better than that. Better throw himself in the river, even, than go back. 
he could see the olive-drab clothes in a heap among the dry bulrushes on the river bank. He thought of himself crashing naked through the film of ice into water black as Chinese lacquer. And when he climbed out numb and panting on the other side, wouldn't he be able to take up life again as if he had just been born? How strong he would be if he could begin life a second time! How madly, how joyously he would live now that there was no more war! He had reached the door of the hospital. Furious shudders of disgust went through him. He was standing dumbly humble while a sergeant bawled him out for being late. Andrews stared for a long while at the line of shields that supported the dark ceiling beams on the wall opposite his cot. The emblems had been erased, and the grey stone figures that crowded under the shields, the satyr with his shaggy goat's legs, the townsman with his square hat, the warrior with the sword between his legs, had been clipped and scratched long ago in other wars. In the strong afternoon light they were so dilapidated he could hardly make them out. He wondered how they had seemed so vivid to him when he had lain in his cot, comforted by their comradeship, while his healing wounds itched and tingled. Still, he glanced tenderly at the grey stone figures as he left the ward. Downstairs in the office, where the atmosphere was stuffy with the smell of varnish and dusty papers and cigarette smoke, he waited a long time, shifting his weight restlessly from one foot to the other. "'What do you want?' said a red-haired sergeant, without looking up from the pile of papers on his desk. "'Waiting for travel orders.' Aren't you the guy I told to come back at three? It is three. Hmm. The sergeant kept his eyes fixed on the papers, which rustled as he moved them from one pile to another. In the end of the room, a typewriter clicked slowly and jerkily. Andrews could see the dark back of a head between bored shoulders in a woolen shirt leaning over the machine. Beside the cylindrical black stove against the wall, a man with large moustaches and the complicated stripes of a hospital sergeant was reading a novel in a red cover. After a long silence, the red-headed sergeant looked up from his papers and said suddenly, Ted! The man at the typewriter turned slowly round, showing a large red face and blue eyes. Well, he drawled, go and see if the loot has signed them papers yet. The man got up stretched himself deliberately and slouched out through a door beside the stove. The red-haired sergeant leaned back in his swivel chair and lit a cigarette. Hell, he said, yawning. The man with the moustache beside the stove let the book slip from his knees to the floor and yawned too. Ugh, this goddamn armistice sure does take the ambition out of a fella, he said. Hell of a note, said the red-haired sergeant. Do you know they had my name in for an OTC? Hell of a note going home without a Sam Brown. The other man came back and sank down into his chair in front of the typewriter again. The slow, jerky clicking recommenced. Andrews made a scraping noise with his foot on the ground. Well, what about that travel order? said the red-haired sergeant. Loot's out, said the other man, still typewriting. Well, didn't he leave it on his desk? shouted the red-haired sergeant angrily. Couldn't find it. I suppose I've got to go look for it. God! The red-haired sergeant stamped out of the room. A moment later he came back with a bunch of papers in his hand. 
"'Your name Jones?' he snapped to Andrews. "'No.' "'Snivsky?' "'No. Andrews. John. Why the hell couldn't you say so?' The man with the mustaches beside the stove got to his feet suddenly. An alert, smiling expression came over his face. "'Good afternoon, Captain Higginsworth,' he said cheerfully. An oval man with a cigar slanting out of his broad mouth came into the room. When he talked, the cigar wobbled in his mouth. He wore greenish kid gloves, very tight for his large hands, and his puttees shone with a dark luster like mahogany. The red-haired sergeant turned round and half-saluted. "'Going to another swell party, Captain?' he asked. The captain grinned. "'Say, have you boys got any Red Cross cigarettes?' I ain't only got cigars, and you can't hand a cigar to a lady, can you? The captain grinned again. An appreciative giggle went round. Will a couple of packages do you, because I've got some here, said the red-haired sergeant, reaching in the drawer of his desk. Fine! The captain slipped them into his pocket, and swaggered out, doing up the buttons of his buff-colored coat. The sergeant settled himself at his desk again with an important smile. Did you find the travel order? asked Andrews timidly. I'm supposed to take the train at 4-2. Can't make it. Did you say your name was Anderson? Andrews. John Andrews. Ah, uh, here it is. Why didn't you come earlier? The sharp air of the ruddy winter evening, sparkling in John Andrews's nostrils, vastly refreshing after the stale odors of the hospital, gave him a sense of liberation. Walking with rapid steps through the grey streets of the town, where in windows lamps already glowed orange, he kept telling himself that another epoch was closed. It was with relief that he felt that he would never see the hospital again, or any of the people in it. He thought of Crisfield. It was weeks and weeks since Crisfield had come to his mind at all. Now it was with a sudden clench of affection that the Indiana boy's face rose up before him. An oval, heavily tanned face with a little of childish roundness about it yet, with black eyebrows and long black eyelashes. But he did not even know if Crisfield were still alive. Furious joy took possession of him. He, John Andrews, was alive. What did it matter if everyone he knew died? There were jollier companions than ever he had known to be found in the world, cleverer people to talk to, more vigorous people to learn from. The cold air circulated through his nose and lungs. His arms felt strong and supple. He could feel the muscles of his legs stretch and contract as he walked, while his feet beat jauntily on the irregular cobblestones of the street. The waiting-room at the station was cold and stuffy full of a smell of breathed air and unclean uniforms. French soldiers wrapped in their long blue coats slept on the benches or stood about in groups, eating bread and drinking from their canteens. A gas lamp in the center gave dingy light. Andrews settled himself in a corner with despairing resignation. He had five hours to wait for a train, and already his legs ached and he had a side feeling of exhaustion. The exhilaration of leaving the hospital and walking free through wine-tinted streets in the sparkling evening air gave way gradually to despair. 
his life would continue to be this slavery of unclean bodies packed together in places where the air had been breathed over and over cogs in the great slow-moving juggernaut of armies what did it matter if the fighting had stopped the armies would go on grinding out lives with lives crushing flesh with flesh would he ever again stand free and solitary to live out joyous hours which would make up for all the boredom of the treadmill he had no hope his life would continue like this dingy ill-smelling waiting-room where men in uniform slept in the field air until they should be ordered out to march or to stand in motionless rows endlessly futilely like toy soldiers a child has forgotten in an attic Andrews got up suddenly and went out on the empty platform. A cold wind blew. Somewhere out in the freight yards an engine puffed loudly, and clouds of white steam drifted through the faintly lighted station. He was walking up and down with his chin sunk into his coat and his hands in his pockets when somebody ran into him. "'Damn!' said a voice, and the figure darted through a grimy glass door that bore the sign, Bouvette. Andrews followed absent-mindedly. I'm sorry I ran into you. I thought you were an M.P. That's why I beat it. When he spoke, the man, an American private, turned and looked searchingly in Andrews's face. He had very red cheeks and an impudent little brown moustache. He spoke slowly with a faint Bostonian drawl. Oh, that's nothing, said Andrews. Let's have a drink, said the other man. I'm AWOL. Where are you going? To some place near Bar-le-Duc back to my division. Been in hospital. Long? Ah, uh, since October. Gee, have some Kurokoa. It'll do you good. You look pale. My name's Harlow. Ambulance with the French Army. They sat down at an unwashed marble table where the soot from the trains made a pattern sticking to the rings left by wine and liqueur glasses. I'm going to Paris, said Henslow. My leave expired three days ago. I'm going to Paris and get taken ill with peritonitis or double pneumonia, or maybe I'll have a cardiac lesion. The army's a bore. Oh, hospital isn't any better, said Andrews with a sigh, though I shall never forget the night which I realized I was wounded and out of it. I thought I was bad enough to be sent home. Why, I wouldn't have missed a minute of the war. But now that it's over, hell, travel is the password now. I've just had two weeks in the Pyrenees. Nîmes, Arles, Les Baux, Carcassonne, Perpignan, Lourdes, Gavarlin, Toulouse. What do you think of that for a trip? What were you in? Infantry. Must have been hell. Bean, it is. Why don't you come to Paris with me? I, I don't want to be picked up, stammered Andrews. Not a chance. I know the ropes. All you have to do is keep away from the Olympia and the railway stations, walk fast and keep your shoes shined. And you've got wits, haven't you? Not many. Let's drink a bottle of wine. Isn't there anything to eat to be got here? Not a damn thing, and I daren't go out of the station on account of the MP at the gate. There'll be a diner on the Marseille Express. But I can't go to Paris. Sure. Look, how do you call yourself? John Andrews. Well, John Andrews, all I can say is that you've let him get your goat. Don't give in. Have a good time in spite of him. To hell with him. 
He brought the bottle down so hard on the table that it broke and the purple wine flowed over the dirty marble and dripped gleaming on the floor. Some French soldiers who stood in a group round the bar turned round. "'V'langa qui gaspille le bon vin,' said a tall, red-faced man with long, sloping whiskers. "'Pour vin sous, je mangerai la bouteille,' cried a little man, lurching forward and leaning drunkenly over the table. "'Done,' said Henslow. "'Say, Andrews, he says he'll eat the bottle for a franc.' He placed a shining silver franc on the table beside the remnants of the broken bottle. The man seized the neck of the bottle in a black, claw-like hand and gave it a preparatory flourish. He was a cadaverous little man, incredibly dirty, with moustaches and beard of a moth-eaten toe-color, and a purple flush on his cheeks. His uniform was clotted with mud. When the others crowded round him and tried to dissuade him, he said, Mon fou, c'est mon métier and rolled his eyes so that the whites flashed in the dim light like the eyes of a dead codfish. "'Why, he's really going to do it!' cried Henslow. The man's teeth flashed and crunched down on the jagged edge of the glass. There was a terrific crackling noise. He flourished the bottle end again. "'My God, he's eating it!' cried Henslow, roaring with laughter. "'And you're afraid to go to Paris!' An engine rumbled into the station, with a great hiss of escaping steam. "'Gee, that's the Paris train! Tiens!' He pressed the franc into the man's dirt-crusted hand. "'Come along, Anders!' As they left the bouvette, they heard again the crunching, crackling noise as the man bit another piece off the bottle. Andrews followed Henslow across the steam-filled platform to the door of a first-class carriage. They climbed in. Henslow immediately pulled down the black cloth over the half-globe of the light. The compartment was empty. He threw himself down with a sigh of comfort on the soft, buff-colored cushions of the seat. But, but what on earth? stammered Andrews. Mon fou, c'est mon métier, interrupted Henslow. The train pulled out of the station. End of section 10